0: Whenever Chelsea and I invite somebody over for dinner, she always makes sure that I ask, are there any dietary restrictions? And of course, the various responses come. We're vegan, uh, we're gluten-free, we're meat We adjust the menu accordingly so that everyone can eat. But can you imagine asking someone, hey, are there... Are there any dietary restrictions, having invited them over for dinner, and receiving this response? Well, yes, actually. I've divided the foods that I may eat into three major categories. There are foods that I can eat from the land, from the the waters, and from the sky, and so from the land, I can eat any animal that has a, a cloven hoof, kind of like two toes, and chews the cud. So, like cows or goats or sheep. But I can't, can't eat any animals that don't fit that description. And so, uh, camels and, and dogs, they're out. All right? And they say, and from the waters. I can eat basically most any fish as long as it has scales and fins. But if it doesn't have scales and fins, then I can't have it. So no eel, no oyster, no catfish. And as it relates to the sky, well, you know, just any carrion bird is basically out. So so no ravens, no bearded vulture, no Egyptian vulture, no owls, no falcons. No, bats, chicken's okay, though. And do you know what else? In this category that we're talking about from the sky, since we're on the subject, uh, most insects I can't eat unless they're joined at at the legs. Really, uh, if you want to serve insects, just locusts is really the best. They're really high in protein, and they're especially good dipped in chocolate. Also, one more thing, since I'm coming over, over to your house, you, you should know that it's okay if you have a dog. I, I just can't eat dogs, but I can touch them. I can, I can pet them and play with them. But you need to know, I cannot touch or be around any, any dead animals. So if there are any dead animals on your property or around your house, if you could just do me a favor and, you know, clean that up before I arrive. Uh, because if I touch those, I'll be unclean and I won't be able to go to worship. And I know this is going to sound really, really weird. I know this is weird. Uh, but if some small rodent, like a, a mouse, uh, were to happen to, to die and fall into like, one of your clay pots, could you just break that pot and throw it out for me? Or uh, if it falls on something that, you know, like a tool that's harder to make than pottery, like you have something nice that's made of leather or a wooden spoon, uh, just put that to the side, wash it off with water, and then we won't, won't use that until evening, Uh, And then lastly, um, I know this has been going on a a really long time. It's a long list of requirements. But lastly, if you happen to be laying out grain and and putting water on it, getting it ready to cook, and and a mouse were to die and fall on top of it, uh, could we just throw that out too and just start over? I I think that's that's pretty much it. Uh, And I really look forward to coming to your house for dinner. If you had such a response to the question, are there any dietary restrictions, uh, you might gather yourself for a moment and say, are you on like the Cato diet or, or Atkins? Is the South Beach? But maybe, maybe uh, you're familiar with Jewish dietary laws. Maybe uh, you've read Leviticus 11 in preparation for church the previous week and so you know that this person is just explaining to you some of the kosher laws within Judaism. It's funny, we identify these laws as kosher laws sometimes, but the Hebrew word kosher doesn't actually show up in the Old Testament. I just thought that was interesting. At any rate, you would then design your meal around these dietary restrictions in order to accommodate what the, what the person who was coming to your home needed to eat or could eat or couldn't eat. But you might be left with the question, What is the reason for all of these food rules? Why do they exist? We come to Leviticus 11 this morning, and within this chapter, we have all of those various rules, things that Israel can eat and cannot eat, which I tried to summarize earlier, and they're all detailed out for us. But, but the big reason why these laws are here, as we will see, is to demonstrate God's holiness and to make sure that God's people are recognized as distinct from the world. As you can see in our main idea there, I've tried to, to summarize what I want you to walk away with this morning, is this, God's people live distinct from the world because they are devoted to God. The reason we get for these clean laws is actually grounded in verses 44 and 45 of our chapter. It says, For I am the Lord your God, therefore you must consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. Do not defile yourselves by any swarming creature that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord, who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, So you must be holy because I am holy. God has saved his people out of Egypt and he's given them a new identity. They're his people. He is their God. And consequently, they need to reflect that in their lives by obeying his law. Part of which includes these food laws. It really is need. And so we're going to walk through uh, talking about these laws this morning uh, by answering three questions, which you have before you, in your outline. Why does God give his people rules about food? Why don't we follow food laws anymore? And what do these laws teach us You also have some really kind of um, janky uh, pictures there uh, given to you about what animals fall into which categories and what they can eat and can't eat. It's a nice little summary uh, since we're not going to read every verse in the chapter together this morning. Before we get started, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege of coming together and hearing from your word. So many generations before us did not have access like we do to your word. We thank you for this great privilege. We acknowledge that men and women were burned alive and martyred so that we could have this word from you in our own language. God, we pray that as we read difficult portions of Scripture that seem so foreign to us, passages like Leviticus 11, that you would put the scent of their flesh in our nostrils. That we would remember what it costs for us to have the Word of God in our hands that we would rightly value it, not as a book that collects dust on our shelves, but that we would come going, these are the very words of God. I do not live on bread alone, but on this word. Father, we pray that you would speak to us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So to understand this whole section, it really kicks off what are going to be a few chapters in Leviticus on ritual cleanliness and and ritual holiness. And what ritual holiness does is it, it guides the people about what they can do and where they can go as it relates to worship. And ritual states have to do with the purity of God and the impurity of the people. So what they do is they vividly display that in order for any human being to go into the presence of God, they need to be purified, right? And so they they teach us about God's holiness and our sinfulness. And typically in Israel, there are three ritual states. They are the impure, sometimes called the unclean, the pure, often called the clean, and the holy, right? So you got impure, pure, and holy. And you could fall anywhere along this uh, kind of line. There are also gradations or degrees of ritual holiness on this line. And so, for example, uh, if you had all of the priests together, they're all going to be in the holy category. But the high priest is going to be even more ritually holy than the other priests. With me? And still we have each of these sets are kind of, they're distinct and you could move from one sphere to the other. You can move from being pure or clean to being impure or unclean. And how that happened was basically how well you adhered to these laws that are laid out in Leviticus. And so it tells you where you can go and what you can do as it relates to worship. So you can't, as we saw in Leviticus 7, when you're uh, eating the fellowship offering, you've offered it for, for yourself and you're just sharing in relationship with God. If you're impure, you can't eat that food. You can't eat at God's table and share God's food if you're impure. And so if you're in this ritual state of impurity, then you can't eat. So it's similar, similar if you want to think of it like a hospital or in terms of physical health. If you have the flu, you can't stroll into a hospital and hold a newborn baby, right? And if you're healthy, you can do that. You can go into the hospital and hold a newborn baby. Or if you are in the hospital and you're healthy, but you're not sanitized, you can't go into the operating room. But if you're healthy and sanitized, well, well, then you can go into the operating room. Similarly, ritual states have to do with where the people of Israel can go. So there's clean space, typically before the Lord. I think it's important to note at this point that ritual states teach about God's holiness, but they do not reflect a person's moral status. You with me? So it was possible to be ritually unclean, but also in complete devotion to the Lord. So for example, when this might happen, um, if you had a relative pass away and you were with them at their bedside, and you wanted to do funeral preparations. This would be good and right of you to do, and good and right for you to mourn. But it would also make you ritually impure for a period of time. And so you couldn't go and offer sacrifices. You couldn't go to worship before the Lord for this particular period of time until you were made clean. Other things that are normal everyday activities also would result in uncleanliness or impurity. So sexual relationship between a husband and wife, that would leave you impure for a little bit of time. That's good and right. Childbirth, yeah, that would leave you impure a little bit longer. And these, are, these are good things, right? God said, go, be fruitful, multiply. And so it's not that uh, the ritual laws correspond hard and fast to someone's sinfulness. So in the same way, uh, if you get the flu, it's not a commentary on your moral character, Right? You've got the flu. And so it's possible to be ritually impure without it reflecting your moral character. In fact, it's possible that some people could be ritually poor, ritually um, pure and morally a mess. Right? We saw that with the Pharisees in the New Testament. But all of these things about ritual status, all of it has to do with teaching about the holiness of God, which speaks to his distinction, his uniqueness. He's the only God like him. There's no one like him. And his goodness and his purity. And so as the people keep these laws, they recognize God as the unique God. And they are themselves his unique people. They are distinct in their devotion to him. And their devotion is showing in their obedience to these food laws. But you might ask, how do these laws, clean, unclean, pure, and impure, how does it all kind of hang together? How do we understand why is is this animal clean, you know, salmon, and why is the octopus unclean? Is there a reason for that? And let me tell you. There are a ton of theories, and so I'm going to share a few of the bad ones with you, and then a couple of the good ones, and then I'll tell you what I think. We'll start with the bad ones. That all of these animals are symbolic, and so what you have to do in this particular view is you just observe the animal's behavior, and that behavior then corresponds with something that's either good or bad, right? And so. a cow would, would chew the cud and so you would go, this means that the cow is, is representative of meditating on the word of God night and day. And then you would look at the camel who spits all the time. and This is, this is representative of how uh, the heathen spits out the word of God. And so we'll eat the cow and not the camel. This is obviously not a good approach. It has no, no logical moorings. It's limited only by your imagination and has no grounding in the text whatsoever. So, so that, that one's out. Uh, the second one is, is kind of just as silly, I think. It's the aesthetic approach, and it's in the name, right? These animals that look nice, uh, we can eat. And so uh, cow, okay, it's a, it's a pretty animal. We, we can eat that. Steak looks great on my plate. But bats, they're kind of ugly and hideous, and nobody wants a bat on their biscuit, right? But, but this approach fails for the same reasons as the first approach, And because we all know that bacon is so beautiful. We love the cuteness of pigs. This is not a good approach. The third approach is a really, really popular one, and you've probably heard it, but it's just as bad as the previous two. This is the hygienic approach, right? The the reason God gave these laws to his people is because this is actually what's most healthy to eat. And if you eat according to these laws, then you're going to live a really, really long time and things are going to go really well for you health-wise. This just doesn't make any sense because, A, the text doesn't tell us that. But more importantly, when Jesus comes, he he literally says, don't worry about following these laws anymore. In in the New Testament, these laws are fulfilled and upended. And so if it is the healthiest way to live, we have to ask ourselves, if, if this is the healthiest food to eat, why would God then abrogate this command? Is he no longer concerned with the health of believers? This just doesn't, doesn't make sense. It doesn't jive. Let me give you two better approaches. One is called the morphological approach. I just call it the wholeness approach. And what this says is that each animal or, or species is supposed to conform to its kind. And so if it's an animal in the water, like a fish, fish are supposed to have scales and fish. Everybody knows that if it's in the water, it should have scales and fish. And so it conforms to its group. But if it's like an octopus... Right? No scales, no fins, just kind of ugh. And so it's kind of impure, it's, it's, it's broken, it's, it's not whole, it's anomalous in some way. And so this idea is that the closer that creatures are, if they're kind of complete or whole, well, then they're pure. And if we find creatures that are mixed up or, or broken or, or not quite whole, then they're impure. Uh, this approach isn't bad. Uh, But it it doesn't make sense in light of God creating everything and calling it good. It also seems to infer that some animals are just ontologically superior to other animals on the basis of how God made them. It just doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it is. It's a viable approach, I think. The last approach, and and of these, I think this is the best one, is the, the life and death approach. And in this paradigm... Uh, purity and impurity correspond to life and death. And so anything that has to do with death is then deemed impure. And so, uh, you, you, for example, you get a corpse and you touch that and you become unclean because you have this picture of death kind of spreading, right? Or if you eat one of those carrion birds that we mentioned earlier, you know, bearded vulture or something, well, they, they eat dead animals and so you have death being transferred right? Can't, blood's unclean because it's this idea of, of life and death being transferred. But, but this one fails too as an explanatory f- framework because, well, we know just next chapter, childbirth makes you unclean. And I'm sorry, I, childbirth is just not associated with, with death typically, right? This is actually life coming into the world. And so it seems to go against the grain of this particular approach. And so, when there's so many varying perspectives, you go, well, what what is the answer? What ties all of these things together? And let me tell you, I think uh, it's really simple, much simpler than than all the approaches I've outlined for you. Some animals are clean and some are unclean. Uh, Some articles of clothing, as we see, will be uh, acceptable. Others will be unacceptable. All because God says so. And parents everywhere rejoiced. It's true. It's true, though. The reason that we're given in this chapter that they're to follow all these food laws is in verses 44 through 45. And it's because God has said so. And this is the way He has determined that His people are going to make themselves distinct from the nations around them. This is the way His people are going to demonstrate their devotion to Him. And it's not the first time that God has done this, given a law or a rule without a thorough explanation, right? Just just think back to the beginning of your Bibles. It gives a dietary restriction to Adam and Eve. You can eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, it exists before evil does. And yet they're told not to eat from it. If you eat from it, you're going to die but they're just told not to eat from it. And yet they eat. And so the point here is that God doesn't have to offer us an explanation for all of his laws or all of his rules. He is God. He owes us no explanation. We don't need to know the reason why God says something in order to obey God. Children, this is a really great lesson for you. Kids, if your mom or your dad tells you to do something, you don't need to know why. You just need to know that mom or dad told me to do this, and so you obey. Likewise, Christian, we don't need to know why God says to do something or not to do something. We just know that he's said it. And even if we don't like it, our job is to obey it. Yes, try to understand it, but ultimately obey it. The posture is obedience. So these laws are there because God has said so. These laws actually would serve a great purpose, especially in regard to these food laws. They would remind the people of their identity. look back at, at verses 44 and 45 of chapter 11. Lays out all these laws and then says, for I am the Lord your God, so you must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. And then verse 45, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, so you must be holy because I am holy. So every time the people would observe these kosher laws, They're being reminded that the Lord has brought me up from the land of Egypt to be my God. They are reminded that God has saved them out of slavery and made them sons. They're being reminded that they have a new identity. They are the people of God. They would probably ruminate on Deuteronomy 7.7. The Lord had his heart set on you, speaking to Israel, and chose you. Not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you. You'd have to be meditating on God's grace all the time. Every time they ate, God saved us. Because he loved us and set his heart on us but also have to think about and be displaying how distinct they are as God's people. Their new identity as God's people is displayed in their eating and drinking, right? This is the reason that they follow these laws. They consecrate themselves to God and be holy because he is holy. It's a demonstration of their identity as God's people. And so we see this in the life of Daniel, right? remember the story of Daniel? uh, The king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon uh, takes Jerusalem and so he takes some of their best and brightest with him back to Babylon and he says, I'm going to train these outstanding young men to serve me in my palace. He's going to do that for about three years and as part of the program. He says, I'm going to provide them with the very best food and drink. And so the people are given the king's food from the king's table and the king's wine. And Daniel and his cohorts refuse to eat it. You go, why? Well, in part to be ceremonially clean. They don't want to risk eating any unclean food. But more importantly, what they are doing when they are refusing the king of Babylon's food is they are maintaining their Jewish identity. They are demonstrating that even though Jerusalem seems to be in rubble, even though the Jewish people seem to be scattered, they're demonstrating we are the people of God and therefore we obey the command of God. Our God has given us a new identity and a new diet. It really is incredible. Their diet shows that they are God's distinct people. And that they are devoted to God. And so we ask: these seem to be good commands, he seems to be identifying the people of God. Why don't we follow these food laws anymore? Typically, theologians answer this question by dividing the law into three parts. Right? You've got the, the moral categories, like Ten Commandments. And then you have the civil category, things that have to do with geopolitical Israel as a nation, and then you have uh, ceremonial categories like we're talking about now, ritual cleanness and uncleanness. And so uh, what what we'll say is that the uh, civil and the ceremonial were unique to Israel. They applied to Israel in a unique way. These moral laws, however, are transcultural, and they apply to all people in all places at all times. Furthermore, uh, the moral aspects of the law are reiterated for us in the New Covenant, we're told to be holy as God is holy. Uh, We're told to, to follow these moral precepts. And on the other hand, we're told to do the opposite with the civil and the ceremonial aspects of the law, as we saw in our reading this morning from Colossians, that all of these things... Were shadows pointing to Christ who is the substance. In fact, for us to try and observe Jewish dietary laws and for us to try and offer sacrifices as the people in Leviticus do would be incongruous of us because our faith is in Jesus. And our belief is that he is the perfect substitutionary sacrifice. We don't need to make sacrifices anymore because Jesus Christ died once for all, for our sins in our place. We don't follow these ritual laws anymore which teach us that that we are impure and you need to be purified to go into God's presence, we don't teach them anymore because we recognize that when our faith is in Jesus, his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the one who makes us clean. He's the one who ushers us into the presence of God. He's our great high priest who lives eternally to make intercession for us. And so we recognize all of these laws are all about Jesus. Maybe the more simple explanation would simply be to say, Jesus also tells us not to follow these laws anymore. And so in the same way that our answer to the, the first question, why did why the people follow all these laws? It was because God said so. Same answer here. Why don't we follow them anymore? Because God said so. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 18. Are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. And so Jesus talking to the Pharisees here, they're complaining because his disciples didn't wash their hands, which was an extra biblical law the Pharisees had employed to try to prevent them from breaking the actual law. And, And Jesus says, you guys are concerned with hand washing, but you're not concerned with your hearts. You're concerned with getting your hands clean, but you haven't grasped what the ritual is meant to teach. The ritual is meant to teach that God is holy and that you inwardly need to be holy. You've understood the outward expression of washing your hands, but you've misunderstood the parable. You've misunderstood what the picture is teaching. That you need to be pure, not externally, but internally. Saying to the Pharisees, you guys look great on the outside but on the inside, you are full of death. The same thing he says in Matthew 23. It's like, you are whitewashed tombs. You've not been made pure. Jesus says, the point of these laws is to point you to me because you need to be cleansed of sin. You need to be made pure so that you can go before God. There are other places in the New Testament that teach us about how these laws have been fulfilled in Christ and are no longer binding on the church. I think my favorite is uh, in Acts chapter 10. You remember Peter is on the on the roof and he's praying right around lunchtime and he has this vision of a kind of a picnic blanket falling from heaven and on that picnic blanket is a bunch of unclean food, you know, pigs and, and bats and camels, whatever. And this is what, this is what happens. Acts chapter 10, verse 13. A voice said to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. It's a great command there, right? Amen. It's some people's life first. Kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Again, a second time, the voice said to him, What God has made clean. Do not call impure. Subsequently, Peter is invited to go to a Gentile's house. The guy's name is Cornelius. And this is what he says when he arrives at Cornelius' home. Verse 28 of Acts chapter 10. He says, You know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure, or unclean, And eventually, Cornelius and his household all believe the gospel. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're baptized upon a profession of their faith. And you see, you see what God is doing. He's saying, part of the way that, that my people used to be made distinct was by following all of these ritual laws. These were the people of God. They abided by these kosher laws. And now, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, as the gospel goes forth, God is saying, these laws are now unnecessary. My people will not be defined by abiding by the kosher laws. Rather, they'll be defined by whether or not they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. These kosher laws used to work like a fence that divided Jews from Gentiles. They didn't eat together. Again, very much showed that the Jews were the distinct people of God. And now God is, is, is getting rid of those fences. And he's saying, My people are those who believe in my Son. Love how Ephesians puts it. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed good news of peace to you who were far away, that's Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The new covenant is new. God's people will now be comprised of both Jew and Gentile. They will be united on the basis of their faith. And this was not an easy transition in the New Testament. Remember in Galatians, Paul has to openly rebuke Peter because he's eating only with Jews and he's abiding by kosher laws. And the Jews that he was eating with are teaching a false gospel. They were teaching Christians that they had to first become Jewish in order to become Christians. And Paul says, Jesus plus nothing is everything. Everything. When you say you have to come to Jesus and do all these Jewish practices, well, then you've lost the gospel. Is that famous line, if anybody preaches you to you a gospel that is other than the one I've preached to you, that you are saved by faith in Christ alone, let that person be anathema. Let them be accursed. Let them go to hell. This is what Paul says. It wasn't an easy transition. And yet this is what God has done. He brought together two groups that were so unalike, Gentile and Jew, and united them in Christ. And he's still doing it every day across nations and cultures and ages. Men and women of every kind of background are coming to believe in Christ Jesus and be united to him. This is what God has done. He's created one new man, one new people, and he's given to us a new way of life. Which brings us to our last question. What do these laws teach us? A number of things. One, that God has made us a new people. His holy people. We get a new identity when we come to faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We, like Israel, move from slavery. They were in slavery in Egypt. and They were brought to Sinai in sonship through the waters of the Red Sea. We, Romans says, were in slavery to sin. We come to faith. We are brought through the waters of baptism, which kind of completes our faith and into relationship with the Holy God. We move from being slaves to being sons. We move out of darkness and into light. We move from death to life. Love how Paul puts this in Romans 6. Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Israel has that kind of marking place in their life when they were taken out of Egypt. And so too do we as Christians. It's that that moment when our faith has, um, our confession of faith has skin put on it. When we enter into those waters of baptism and we say, I have decided to follow Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he died in my place for my sins, that he's risen from the dead, he's ruling and reigning in heaven, and that he will one day return to end evil and to make all things new. This I believe. I'm going to follow him, taking up my cross, I'm following him, I'm obeying his command to repent and to be baptized. And then the church says, we, we agree that you are Christian and we are baptizing you. We're putting you into this symbolic, watery grave together with Christ and we are raising you up to walk in the newness of life. You have a new identity. When we are baptized as Christians, it's, it's as if we are putting on, if you had like a uniform, you could think like soldiers have uniforms. It's like you're putting on the uniform of Team Jesus. You're saying, the old me with my sin is dead and gone. And the new me has been united to Christ by faith and is risen. I'm new. I'm going to walk in the newness of life. Jesus Christ gives us a new identity when we turn from our sins and put our faith in him. Oh, Christian, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. That ritual which announced to the world I'm with Jesus. Remember that moment that you went public with your faith. Remember that God has made you new. He's given you a new identity. He's saved you from your sins. You're not the old you. The old you has been crucified with Christ and no longer lives. And the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. Christian, don't ever get over the grace and mercy of God when you think, why why am I a Christian? Remember, it's because God has his heart set on you. And he chose you. Not because you were really, really awesome, but because he is good. Non-Christian, You can be saved. You can be born again. You can start over. You can get a new identity. You can be a part of the family of God. All you must do is repent of your sins and believe. All you must do is is repent and be baptized. I implore you. Put your faith in Christ, who has made his church, his people, his holy people. Jesus not only gives us a new identity in the same way that he gives Israel a new identity, he also gives us a new diet in the same way that he gave Israel a new diet. Indeed, they were told not to eat foods that were impure or unclean, And we are told to feast upon the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 6, verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Friends, the Lord's Supper is a church-defining meal. When you are joined to the church through baptism and then you come to the Lord's Supper regularly to eat and drink unto the Lord's glory, you are identifying as God's holy people, as those whose faith is in Christ. And as we feast upon our Lord's body and blood, it's not literal, we're not cannibals, as we feast upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we are reminded of our devotion to him. And our dependence upon him is he that sustains us through life. It is Jesus who binds us, the many, into one body by his one Holy Spirit. Oh, church, the Lord's Supper is a defining meal. It says these are the people of God. These are those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Encourage you, do not come to the Lord's table casually. We are told in 1 Corinthians 11 that it is possible for us to partake of the Lord's Supper in a manner that is unworthy. We are told that judgment comes to those who take this supper in unbelief, that judgment comes to those who partake of this supper without repentance. The judgment comes to those who who eat and drink of the Lord's Supper while indifferent to their brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a problem in Corinth, remember? Rich folks didn't have to work as much as the poor folks, and so they showed up and got drunk and ate all the food up, and then the poor folks showed up late, and Paul said, when you get together to take the Lord's Supper, you're not taking the Lord's Supper at all. When you gather together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. And he rebukes them. He says, take mind, be thoughtful when you come to the table. You are feasting upon the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. I don't say that to scare you away from the table, Christian. But to encourage you that when you do take, that when you do drink of the blood and eat of the body, that you do so considering the body of Christ your brothers and sisters. That you do so having repented of your sins. Pray that you would come to the table seriously joyful. That you would be sober as you thought back to Jesus dying in agony for your sin. For you. And that you would also be joyful as you contemplated his resurrection and look forward to that day when he returns and promises us that we will eat and drink together in celebration at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Which is just a, a wonderful illustration from marriage. When Jesus and his people are together again. Fully in the new earth. Come seriously joyful. We are new People, we have a new diet, and we are to live in the newness of life. We are to be holy as God is holy. I mean, can you imagine being in Israel with, with all of these various ritual laws about purity and impurity? Can you imagine what that would be like? Just, just if, you, if you want to do this, you can take, do an experiment. This week, you try. We'll just do the food laws. You try to live by just Leviticus 11. You can incorporate some of the clothing laws later where you're not allowed to have a mixture of textures, right? You just have to wear cotton shirts all week. And think, man, what do I learn? think if we had to live like the Israelites, we would think about holiness all the time. I don't know how much we think about holiness now. Meaning, mean, in Israel, it would be nay impossible not to think about God. you wake up in the morning, and there at the center of the camp is the smoke billowing up from the morning sacrifice, the burnt offering, and the smoke would continue to roll up all day. You'd be reminded, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I need a substitute. God has provided one. Then you would go to eat your breakfast, and you'd have to think about, is this kosher? Is it not kosher? Is it pure, impure. Uh, my clothes. I'm picking up my clothes. Pure, not pure. Oh, um, you know. Hey, she's pregnant. Is she going to be impure over the next few weeks? On down the line, you you would not be able to get away from this idea that some things were going to land you in a ritually pure state, which would allow you to worship, and other things would put you in a ritually impure state, and you were responsible to know which state you were in. You would be thinking about holiness all the time, and the, the point here, friends, is that we should be thinking about holiness. All the time. These laws show us that God rules over all of life. That God is indifferent to nothing. Do you take holiness too lightly? I wonder what it would be like for us to wake up in the morning and go... I want to be holy as God is holy. Friends, I encourage you to walk in the newness of life this week. To rejoice in the wonderful truth that in Christ we've been given a new identity, made his people. We've been given new customs in the Lord's Supper and in gathering together as his people. And and, and new um, commands to, to preach the gospel to all nations. We've been called to live in the newness of life, reflecting God's holiness and love to a lost and dying world. Oh, friends, we are God's people. And we, like Israel, are called to live distinct lives. We are to be distinct from the world because of our devotion to God. Let's live different this week. And in so doing, honor Our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the cross. Pray that you would inflame our affections for you this morning. We confess that none of us is perfect. We are all sinners. Confess that we will all continue to sin, we will fail and falter. We thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive our sins when we confess them. We thank you that each week when we come here, we recognize that that it's only through the blood of Jesus. It's only by your grace and your mercy. We thank you that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.